recent reading, Creativity, Mastery, and the Three Phases of Learning. So I'd like to talk about a few of the books that I've finished over the last few months and some of the insights that I've gleaned from each. Number one, Beginning to Read by Marilyn Adams. Now, I didn't expect to find a 500-page book on the science of early reading to be interesting, but I was enthralled, both by the amount of work that has been done on figuring out how people learn to read and what's the best way to teach them, but also what it implies for learning other skills. Fluent readers can comprehend text at a rate of several words per second. So given this, it's easy to believe that we just skim over the words and infer the text by its surrounding context or just don't pay attention to the individual letters and see the words as a whole picture. Fascinatingly, studies show that this isn't the case. Good readers fixate on nearly every word in a sentence and seem to pay attention to nearly every letter within each word. We manage to do this because the sound spelling patterns are so thoroughly overlearned that unconscious neural networks acting simultaneously perform the cognitive work of decoding the text. In light of this, Adams argues that the best way to learn to read is first to systematically learn the basic sound spelling combinations in a language, or phonics, and second to engage in lots and lots and lots of reading where attention is focused on the sequence of letters to identify the words. Now, I may eventually do a fuller write-up of Adam's book as it contains a lot of nuggets for thinking about other skills that haven't been researched as thoroughly as learning to read. But for now, I found it interesting to understand how this process works. Number two, Social Learning Theory by Albert Bandura. In this psychology classic, Albert Bandura introduced the idea of self-efficacy to the study of motivation. Many early theories of motivation focused on expected benefits. If I thought the likely outcome of an action would be good for me, I'd feel motivated to do it. In contrast, if it involved risk or harm, I'd feel averse to taking that action. Yet these theories seem ill-equipped to explain the diversity of motivation that we see in our real lives. Why do students study hard for a test while others suck? Moreover, why do we fail to motivate ourselves to do the things that we readily understand are in our self-interest? Bandura argued that it wasn't merely our sense of the presumed benefits of taking an action, but also our beliefs about our ability to take that action that influenced our motivation. So, a student who thinks that she can't pass no matter how hard she studies won't be motivated, even if the cost of failing to study is high. We gain self-efficacy for specific actions by seeing them done by others, or better yet, succeeding at them ourselves. Mastery experiences can become a self-reinforcing cycle as experiencing success leads to greater self-efficacy and therefore greater motivation. Number three, Visible Learning by John Hattie. What works in education? Unfortunately, the answer is seemingly everything. Every pet theory and learning technique has some supporter armed with a study showing how well it works. But when everything seems to work, what should you focus on? One way around this quagmire is through a meta-analysis. This is a technique that groups together many, many different studies to find the average or overall effect of an intervention. Hattie's book goes even further, compiling 800 different meta-analyses in education to see a bird's-eye view of what works well for learning. Hattie concludes that feedback plays a central role. Not just the feedback of correcting students' mistakes, but feedback to the teacher on what students are learning or failing to grasp. Mastery learning, direct instruction, and reciprocal teaching farewell in Hattie's analysis. This is my second time through Hattie's book, and I'm sure it won't be my last. Number four, The Handbook of Creativity, edited by Robert Sternberg. Creativity is one of our most mythologized abilities. It is also one of the most poorly understood. 
I found this book useful for comparing different perspectives on creativity, including the role of expertise, chance, and social environment, and personality traits in influencing what results in creative thinking. So the gist I got from reading these different perspectives is that creativity is a combination of individual problem-solving ability. So like routine problem-solving, this is a process of applying previously acquired knowledge to generate new options. Second, social recognition. So whether something is creative is a judgment that's based on prevailing opinions rather than just an intrinsic trait of the thing itself. And also risk-taking and randomness. A creative versus a routine expert might be distinguished by the former's willingness to bet big on risky ideas. In this view, creativity is not a skill. It's not something you can practice or learn how to do. Instead, it's a byproduct of acquired expertise and a willingness to take intellectual risks. Thus, the best way to be more creative is to learn a lot of things and take a lot of swings. Number five, Implementing Mastery Learning by Thomas Gusky. Mastery learning is one of the more effective pedagogical techniques for achievement, with powerful effects among weaker students. The basic idea is simple. Students are given lots of interim tests that don't count for grades. Those who don't demonstrate mastery of the material are given new explanations and practice in order to succeed. The end goal is that 95% of the students should be able to pass the class. Mastery learning tends to improve outcomes by one half to one standard deviation, which puts it in Hattie's zone of desired effects, as reviewed in his previous book. So it's something that works pretty well. Number six, Human Performance by Paul Fitz and Michael Posner. This book is a classic for introducing Fitz and Posner's three stages of skill acquisition. First, there's the cognitive phase. This is where you learn explicitly how to perform the skill. So learning in this stage involves trying to apply instructions and make sense of explanations and use them in practice. Second, the associative phase. So here you're practicing on your own and you're trying to eliminate or weed out major errors and apply the skill in different contexts. And finally, the automatic stage. Automaticity has advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is that it frees up resources to do other things. For skills like reading or driving, this can be essential. If you can't automatically recognize words or manipulate the steering wheel, additional tasks like analyzing a text or finding your way through a new city are nearly impossible. The disadvantage is that being automated, skills overlearned to this point are much more difficult to change or correct. Anders Ericsson proposed that much of becoming a world-class expert was engaging in practice efforts that work to undo some of the effects of this skill automation, using drills that bring back awareness to some parts of the skill into that effortful control phase where you can make adjustments. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.